A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding humanity and our place in the universe. This episode, number 46, is on Shakespeare, because this month we are celebrating both his birthday and the 400th anniversary of his death. But before I get started, a few reminders. First, please check out the Agora Podcast Network, of which this podcast is a proud member. The Agora Podcast of the Month is actually a collection of podcasts from Podcastnik, who produce The Secret Cabinet, History of Germany, Bohemican, and lots of other great history podcasts. Check it out at www.podcastnik.com, P-O-D-C-A-S-T-N-I-C, podcastnik.com. Also, I have a book coming out April 15th. It's a novel called Sideways and Backwards, a novel of time travel and self-discovery. And it's about a contemporary woman who accidentally travels to Cambridge circa 1539. This is my first novel, and I'm so, so, so excited about it. The ebook is only $2.99, and if you pre-order it before April 15th when it's released, I'm also going to give you a free copy of the audiobook narrated by me. I would love it if you would check it out. You can go to sidewaysandbackwardsbook.com or there's also a link from the Englandcast site at englandcast.com. And if you're listening after April 15th, don't worry, you'll still be able to buy both the ebook and the audiobook. Just go to the link for more information. And thank you. Okay, so let's start our talk on the bard, William Shakespeare, shall we? A reminder that there are show notes available at englandcast.com with lists of resources and lots of good information to follow up and learn more. You really can't do Shakespeare properly in half an hour of a podcast by an amateur. So this is really meant to be a brief introduction. As I've said, I've put together a list of resources so you can learn more on the site. 
For those of you who are Shakespeare aficionados, you might find this brief introduction offensive, and for that, I apologize. I do plan on doing more in-depth episodes on certain aspects of Shakespeare in the future. Perhaps, for example, we could look at an individual work and examine how it fits into what was happening in England at the time, or what we can surmise about Elizabethan society based on Shakespeare's portrayals of marriage and love, for example. But for now, given that I've never talked about him before, which is certainly a huge oversight on my part, I'm just going to do the most basic of basic introductions to his life. And also, I should note that there are 400 years worth of conspiracy theories as to who Shakespeare really was. Mark Twain famously said that, so far as anybody actually knows and can prove, Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon never wrote a play in his life. And there really isn't a lot that is known about Shakespeare's life and how he wrote his plays. He was a very private man. For the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to assume that the William Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon is the person who wrote Hamlet, Macbeth, and all of the rest of the plays. I will, however, put some links on the site to articles that deal with the authorship question, i.e. conspiracy theories. And some of them make sense, like I totally get it. But like I said, for this podcast, we're going to assume that Shakespeare of Stratford is Shakespeare of Hamlet. There are very few sources of information on the life of Shakespeare as well. No one has ever found any letters to his friends or manuscript copies of the plays that he wrote. We don't even have any evidence that he even owned any books. The main source of information about his life would be the legal and public records that have survived, things like death certificates, marriage licenses, suits, etc., Historians are also able to extrapolate information based on his plays and matching them up with events that were happening in the world. And frustratingly, even when the earliest biographers like Nicholas Rowe were putting together their works on Shakespeare, one of his daughters was still alive, but nobody thought to interview her about her father. So that's really frustrating. So the first fact we know about William Shakespeare born in Stratford-on-Avon, was that he was born on about April 23rd, 1564. He was baptized at Holy Trinity Church on April 26th, and that would generally mean a birthday about three days beforehand. He wasn't born into any kind of noble family, but he was firmly middle class. He had a link on his mother's side to a wealthy family, the Ardens. And his father was John Shakespeare, who was a glover and a leather merchant. His mother, Mary Arden, had brought money with her to the marriage, but it had all been used up by the time Shakespeare came of age. He was the third of eight children in the family, although three died in childhood. When Will was younger, his family was fairly well-to-do. Like I said, his father was a merchant, he was an alderman and a bailiff. In fact, I've talked before about Queen Elizabeth's progress and working holiday at Kenilworth Castle in 1575, when the Earl of Leicester tried so hard to woo her for the final time with fireworks and extravagant gardens and pageants galore. And it's possible that William would have attended at least part of these public festivities, seeing as how his father would possibly have had a role to play as bailiff. And Kenilworth was only about 14 miles from Stratford. 
So it's really enticing to think about young Will watching these pageants and being introduced to the theater in that way. William likely would have attended the local grammar school in Stratford, the King's School, but he never went to university. And again, that's a fact that has fueled the debate about the authorship of his works, because he wrote about so much stuff that you would assume he would have had to have had a college education to know about. But he did have a solid education. That was proven by his knowledge of Latin and classical Greek, and his ability really to distill information and churn it back out as these very moving plays. So his father, John, lost his luck in the late 1570s, and the family ran up debts. Now, there's been some speculation about whether this is because of the tightening rope on Catholics. And I've talked before about how the Catholic experience during Elizabethan England got so bad by the late 1570s and early 1580s as there were these threats against Elizabeth and how there were so many more laws then against recusant Catholics. So it's possible that John was being fined for not attending the Protestant service. And there's actually a a piece of paper with his signature on it claiming to be a Catholic. It's a really mysterious piece of paper that has been hidden away, and we don't really know much about why it was created. It might have been a secret pact with the others who were signatories on it as well. But either way, there's a very strong possibility that the Shakespeare's had some recusant blood running through them. And it's possible that their luck began to run out, in part due to the new laws around religion. The next we hear about Shakespeare officially was his marriage to Anne Hathaway in November 1582. And this is one of the most famous marriages in history. It was a rushed marriage. It didn't follow the normal protocol of reading the bands. And she was pregnant. Their daughter, Susanna, was born in May 1583. So she would have been about three months pregnant. Now, Shakespeare was 18 when he married Anne, and she was 26. And much has been made of this marriage and whether he truly loved Anne. Now, I'm certainly not an expert in this, but in the readings that I have done, it appears that this was a rushed marriage thanks to Anne's pregnancy. And the fact that William was able to spend so much time away from his family and his wife in the future living in London and only returning home occasionally is telling to me. So I just spent six weeks away from my husband when I had to go back to the U.S. and he stayed in Spain. And that was pretty much agony. Shakespeare was away for years at a time. And it would appear that this wasn't a romantic marriage. And when you think about what was expected of the time period, romance in a marriage wasn't really something that you looked for. But you did look for a good match. And it seems that this was neither romantic love or very much of a match for William. But in fact, He got Anne pregnant, and he had to man up and deal with the consequences. Like I said before, I'm very interested in what Shakespeare tells us about love and marriage in Elizabethan England, but even more revealing, perhaps, is what he tells us about his particular marriage. Most Shakespearean marriages in his plays aren't particularly long and happy. Even the comedies that end with everyone getting married seem to do so with a certain level of pain and really deep compromise involved. For example, the taming of the shrew. The shrew needs to be tamed and, you know, have her willfulness taken out of her. And of course, this is a joke in Elizabethan society because you wouldn't want your women to be too strong. 
But it just seems that in all of his portrayals of marriage, there's something like that. It's never just coming together with love and affection on an equal level between partners. Again, how much of that was to be expected from Elizabethan society and how much was because Shakespeare was perhaps disappointed in his own marriage? We don't know, of course. But it doesn't seem that he was particularly pleased with his match. He did have two other children with Anne. They were twins, Judith and Hamnet. Hamnet died in childhood at the age of 11 in 1596. Shakespeare went back home then, of course, for his funeral. And soon after, he wrote Hamlet, which is, of course, hauntingly similar to his son's name. For the next seven years, Shakespeare disappears from all records before he shows up in London in 1592. At the beginning of the seven-year period, he was 21, and he was married with three children in Stratford. At the end of the seven-year period, he was living in London as a resident playwright and part owner of a theater company. This period is known as the Lost Years and has led to many of the conspiracy theories. There are so many possibilities as to what he could have been doing. He perhaps would have had to have run away because of issues with the law over poaching with Sir Thomas Lucy nearby. So the earliest and most common story of his life was written down around 1616 by a clergyman in Gloucestershire by the name of Richard Davies. According to Davies, Shakespeare was known to poach deer and rabbits on the property of local landowner Sir Thomas Lucy, quote, who oft had him whipped and sometimes imprisoned. Supposedly, Shakespeare left Stratford to avoid punishment. It's thought that Shakespeare teased Lucy in a ballad that he wrote in the mid-1580s, and it reads, A parliament member, a justice of peace, at home a poor scarecrow, at London an ass. If Lousy is Lucy, as some folks miscall it, then Lucy is Lousy, whatever befall it. And there's a lot of scholars who say that that whole thing never happened, that he didn't write the ballad. But it's a clever story, and it's a clever ballad. And perhaps it's one of the things that led him to leave Stratford during that time. In the late 1600s, another early biographer mentioned Shakespeare as a schoolmaster in rural England for at least part of that time. And this story is considered more believable since it comes from the son of an actor who had been in Shakespeare's theater company. And it also helps to explain how Shakespeare may have become more educated before he arrived in London. But again, there's no solid documentary evidence. In 1985, the scholar E.A.J. Honigman wrote a new theory in his work, Shakespeare, The Lost Years. The evidence is purely circumstantial, but he proposed that Shakespeare served a wealthy Catholic family in Lancashire, and that Shakespeare was likely a recusant Catholic himself, which may have led to his departure from Stratford. And the theory hinges on a reference to a William Shakeshaft in the will of Alexander Houghton, in which there's also a mention of costumes and musical instruments, which of course would have been the sort of things that play actors would have had costumes and musical instruments. Honigman's premise remains a theory, of course, without any solid proof. 
but it's an interesting one to think about. This period continues to be a subject of a lot of speculation, and other popular stories have Shakespeare leaving Stratford with a troop of actors, or working as a soldier, a law clerk, a butcher, a glover, a scrivener, or a merchant. One story even puts young Shakespeare in London, essentially valet parking horses, i.e. he would hold horses outside of theaters for patrons. And sadly, unless any new evidence shows up, we will probably never find out exactly what happened to Shakespeare during those years. Either way, by 1592, we have a record of him in London, thanks to a taunt from Robert Greene. Robert Greene was another playwright in London, and he was college-educated, along with Christopher Marlowe. There was a whole group of these playwrights who had gone to Cambridge or Oxford who were really well-educated and really thought themselves quite the thing. And Robert Greene wrote, quote, "'An upstart crow, beautified with our feathers,' that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide supposes he is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you. And being an absolute Johannes factotum is in his own conceit, the only shake scene in a country. So he was kind of making fun of Shakespeare for being above his station and supposing that he could be as good as these college-educated playwrights. He was already making waves and seeing some success here. Between 1590 and 1592, Shakespeare's Henry VI series, Richard III, and the Comedy of Errors were performed. In 1593, the theaters were closed because of the plague, and he wrote two narrative poems. He wrote Venus and Adonis and The Rape of Lucrece. And he probably began writing his sonnets at that point. 154 of his sonnets have survived. By 1594, he had also written The Taming of the Shrew, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, and Love's Labor's Lost. One of the things that it's really important to remember about Shakespeare is that he didn't particularly write original stories. Most of his famous plays are based on stories that had been told throughout England and Europe for centuries. Even the very famous Hamlet, had already likely been done by Thomas Kidd. What made Shakespeare great wasn't so much his originality in coming up with plots, but his ability to fine-tune them, to make them better, to make them more modern and in a way that would touch people no matter what the time period, to make them relevant throughout 400 years, make them seem as applicable to contemporary times as they were then. He explores relationships in deeper ways than had ever been done before. He looks at these stories in new ways, looking at the power and the jealousy and the whole gamut of human emotions in a depth that had never before been explored. He also created over 1,700 new words that are still commonly used today. These are words like laughable, lonely, barefaced, cold-blooded, impede, luggage, and majestic. One of the links I put up in the show notes is to an extensive database of the words that he invented, and it's totally worth checking out. By 1594, Shakespeare was acting and writing for the Lord Chamberlain's Men, which was subsequently called the King's Men after James I came to the throne in 1603. The Lord Chamberlain's Men was one of many troops that acted in London, and they became well-known, they became favorites of Elizabeth by the late 1590s. 
Shakespeare was not only an actor for them, but also a managing partner. He was a primary shareholder in the Globe Theater, which was built, for example, at that time. And two other famous Elizabethan theater personalities were part of this troupe. There was a famous fool called Will Kemp that Shakespeare wrote a lot of parts for, and also Richard Burbage, who was a tragic actor. There's a famous story worth mentioning here about how the Globe came to be. The troupe had been acting at a venue called simply the Theater North of the River. They had had some issues with their landlord, and he was canceling their lease. But they argued that the materials to build the theater had belonged to the troupe. So in the middle of a cold December night, the troupe brought with them builders and construction men who dismantled it and moved each piece individually to a warehouse while the owner was away celebrating Christmas outside London. And it remains one of the most interesting stories about Shakespeare as we imagine him pulling this really rather badass stunt off. All of these guys showing up under cover of darkness with a new moon and just tearing apart the theater um, as the night went on and taking each piece to a warehouse. The pieces were stored through the winter and then in spring the construction of the globe began using the same materials. Shakespeare's theater company was the most successful in London in his day. He had plays published and sold as penny copies to those in his audience who could read. And this was a big deal because never before had a playwright enjoyed this kind of acclaim to see his works published and sold as popular literature while he was still alive. And also Shakespeare's ownership share in both the theatrical company and the Globe made him as much of an entrepreneur as an artist. So he was kind of into everything. And while he wasn't really considered wealthy by London standards, he was able to purchase New House. It was the second largest house in Stratford and have a really comfortable retirement after 1611. He wrote his will in 1611 and he bequeathed his properties to his daughter, Susanna. She married in 1607 to a Dr. John Hall And to his surviving daughter, Judith, he left 300 pounds. And to his wife, he left, quote, my second best bed. So again, that has fueled the controversy about their marriage, that he left her their second best bed. Some people say, well, the second best bed would have been the marriage bed because the first best bed would have been what guests slept on. So it was actually really quite touching that he left her that. But he didn't leave her anything else, just the second best bed. I don't know. I don't really buy it but that's me. I'm curious if you buy it or not, though. So you should let me know. Okay, so anyway, off of done with the gossip about Shakespeare's marriage. While he was still while he was in retirement, he collaborated with other playwrights. He wrote The Two Noble Kinsmen. This was one that he wrote with a collaborator, John Fletcher around 1613. And he died on April 23rd, 1616. Again, supposedly his birthday and he was interred at Holy Trinity in Stratford on April 25th. We also don't know the cause of his death, like so much in Shakespeare's life, we don't know. But his brother-in-law had died a week earlier, so that might imply an infectious disease. But it could have also been a longer decline, who knows. In 1623, two working companions of Shakespeare from the Lord Chamberlain's men John Hemmings and Henry Condell printed the first folio edition of his collected plays. And of that collection, 
over half were previously unpublished. And Shakespeare's words, of course, have survived through 400 years. They still touch us as powerfully as ever. And even in his death, he left a piece of verse that's really quite funny. This was what he wanted to have on his grave. Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear to dig the dust and close it here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. His bones haven't ever been moved. That's worth noting. (laughs) Reflecting upon his peer and his rival, Ben Jonson wrote of Shakespeare, he was not of an age, but for all time. So now for the book recommendation, which is Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare by Stephen Greenblatt. I have a link on the site with the show notes. You can also get in touch on Facebook at facebook.com slash Englandcast or via Twitter at Tesco, T-E-Y-S-K-O, or by texting the listener feedback line at 8016-TESCO. And please remember to buy my book, (laughs) http colon slash slash www.sidewaysandbackwardsbook.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'll be back in about two weeks with another interview with Tudor Times on their Person of the Month. I know who it is, but I'm not going to (laughs) tell. It'll be a good one, though. And I'm going to do one more episode on the theater with a look at some of the other playwrights of the time, including Christopher Marlowe, Ben Johnson, Thomas Kidd, some of these others. And then after that throughout May and June, I'm going to do a couple of episodes on rebellion, specifically some of the more famous rebellions that plagued our 16th century monarchs. So that'll be fun. So thanks again for listening, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.